It's Wednesday, July 28th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Yeri Jero, and welcome to Empire Jeopardy, the web's most popular game show. I'm your host and witness as the Empire winds itself up and just keeps unwinding. All three contestants are back from last week. He's an urban vertical farmer from battered Washington and winner of this year's Golden Trellis Award. Meet Jack Browndart. What's the Golden Trellis, Jack? Uh, it's the Oscar of vertical permaculture, Yeri. I won it for growing 380 pounds of Brussels sprouts up the elevator shaft of an abandoned factory. I brought some for you. Thanks a bushel, Jack. He was the commander of former intelligence at CINCOM Dreadsent AFPAC in Hintsville, Arkansas. But he's been picked to head the unmanned manpower center at the Drone Alone Air Force Base on Growler Island, Washington. Meet Colonel Buda Braunschweig. Uh, that's quite a promotion they gave you, Colonel. You know, once I heard about my 3D PowerPoint, and happy. <laughs> she was a loan denier for Windjammer Gorgle in Jockey Shorts, Illinois, until they kicked her upstairs to run the whole loan denial division in their Tipping Point Washington headquarters. Meet Swindle. Lou Zimmer. Happy about the transfer, Swindaloo? Working for Windjammer Gorgol is the best life sentence in the business, Mr. Yarrow. Well, the rules are as simple as our returning contestants. Win two and we talk, lose two and you walk. Tie it up and we come back for more. Okay, here we go. Four out of every five. What is the percentage of packaged foods that contain empty calories? What is the percentage of civilians collateralized by a predator-launched Hellfire missile? Yeah. <laughs> What is the percentage of the unemployed turned away from every job opening? Right you are, Swindaloo. A lot of them sleep outside my office. Well, let's go again. They're invisible, hard to catch, and worth $100 billion. What's left of the salmon in Alaska? Who are all the wealthy deadbeats who walked on their mortgages? Who are the 100 Al-Qaeda bumps still operating in Afghanistan? Bingo, butter! Hey, <laughs> you can't fight them. You can't drone them. So here we are, Swindaloo and Butter, we could talk. Okay. Jack, you're one wrong answer away from walking. Hey, don't sell my Birkenstock short, Yari. Here it is. Last one. A clueless barfly with delusions of grandeur. Who is John Bomer? Right on, Swindaloo. It's John Bomer, the Sultan of Suntan. I speed dated him once. Five minutes was enough. And here's what you've won, Swindy. A million dollars worth of golden sacks of crap toxic derivatives. They're perfect for wallpapering your nest egg. A complete set of the president's heads in chocolate from the Franklin After Dinner Mint. Ooh, just in time for my book group. And an all-expenses-paid weekend on Louisiana's Gas War Island Resort. Slip into your Hawaiian hazmat halter top, order up a couple of 30-weight mojitos on us, and chill out. Talk about a private beach, Swindy. You're the only living thing within 10 miles. I guess I could take off my top. Uh, not yet. This is Yeri Jero, host of Empire Jeopardy, reminding you that everybody else is just a failed attempt at being us. Oh yeah, you got Oz in your ears. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, up here on RadioFreeOz.com. Sitting in for our co-host briefly, sitting in for David Osmond is Sheriff Luther Axhandle. What's yeah. up, Sheriff? Well, I'll tell you, it's been, uh, well, you know, we're just overwhelmed with reports. And I, I just am, uh, you know, July the 4th was a big one for us here on the island. Always I mean, is. There's dogs barking and there's a, a, a MO10s or whatever they have. They're booming out there. But I'll tell you, the most important thing on July the 4th that happened here is a caller on Hodges Avenue reported a possible prowler. The woman there, and this is at 12 a.m. in the morning, hmm. said she could hear someone tapping on the windows, banging and whistling all around the house. Now, you think that sounds suspicious, eh? All right, at 1239, less than 40 minutes later, a woman on Hodges Avenue uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh -huh, said someone was messing around with her back door again. She said it sounds like they're throwing rocks at the door. Now, and now everything else on July 4th is something you could expect. But a woman, a poor old lady there on Hodges Road getting rocks thrown at her well, door. Well, the whistling and all that sounds like someone's like practicing to join, you know, a vaudeville troupe, but rocks on the door. No, no, absolutely. Unacceptable. Well, we got through July the 4th. I, I don't even want to explain to you what went on that day. It's just all them dogs and the M10s and all that. But uh, on July the 5th, <laughs> at 11.52 in the morning, an elderly woman walked into the fire station on Cameron Road and said someone broke into her home the night before, and the poor thing had been driving around all night because she was scared. 
She was scared, so she drove yeah. around the island. I mean, all this night. is sad news. She oh. was scared, like most of the people in this country. And there's no place on this island to go after like six in the afternoon. Well, and you to can't talk. all of us drive around all night. It'd be, you know, traffic. Uh, now, okay, now here's another one for you. Uh, a driver stopped for ice cream on Shore Avenue and left the vehicle with the engine running. The dogs inside the uh, 2007 Chevy Suburban, that's a big one, you know, the dogs locked the doors, <laughs> leaving the driver stranded. <laughs> oh, them dogs, sense of humor. Clever oh, dogs. Yeah. They're funny. We know, we know some people who got dogs smart as that, you know. Now, uh, the uh, on July 13th, you know, I mean, it was so exhausting. I'm just getting in these reports, but... Back on, on July 13th, the man on Linda Lane wanted to talk about the condition of his mower after it was returned after being stolen. Oh. You know, I mean, you call up the sheriff and you want to talk about your machine. I mean, this is not something we offer as a service down yeah. there, you know. We got only three guys here, you particularly know. Particularly postpartum. I mean, it was stolen in its back, and I don't like what I got. This is, this is an insurance issue, not a sheriff issue. There you go. You're quite right. Would you like to join the force anyway? Uh, uh, all right, then, on Wednesday at 11.07 in the morning, this is my final report for today, a worker at a Freeland business said a customer wrote a $10,000 check that bounced. No. Yeah. Let me just write you a ten thousand dollar check. Uh, for that's that. got a lot of zeros in it. You bouncy, know? bouncy, <laughs> bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. I'm going to bounce right out. Now it's always nice doing the sheriff's report with See you. See you, Luther. The problem with being Barack Obama, I figured out, is that when you get elected and people think you're the Messiah, that's pretty big shoes of the fisherman to fill. All right. So now that he's taking a step by step through this awful time, it's not enough for anybody. The left, the right, the center. They all have nothing but bad things to say about Mr. Obama, except for Mike Grunewald, who's a real curmudgeon and a, and a writer for Time magazine who gives us the following. Mike says, let me start with a few words I don't say very often. I was wrong. Let me add a few words I say even less often. I'm glad I was wrong. President Obama signed a sweeping Wall Street reform bill July 21st, something I stubbornly insisted was unlikely to happen, even when my sources assured me it was virtually certain to happen. Oh, I hedged myself better than Lehman Brothers did. I said passage was certainly possible. And I was just one vote in the Senate away from saying a few words that my wife knows I say irritatingly often, I told you so. But I'm eating crow today, and that's good for the country as well as for my wife. I guess she doesn't cook a very good crow. I didn't expect the bill to be this tough either. So actually, here we are in praise of Obama's toughness. This is an extraordinary victory for Obama, says Grunewald, along with punching bags Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner, lame duck Senator Christopher Dodd, and lightning rod Congressman Barney Frank over the combined forces of big finance and the Republican Party. So you beat big finance and the Republican Party. Man, man, you, you, you drove them out of the temple and the fascists are gone. Politically, it makes Obama and congressional Democrats look like strong and effective defenders of, of Main Street. It makes all but a few Republicans look like bought and sold water carriers for Wall Street. There, there's an image you want to take into the midterms. I'm a bought and sold water carrier for Wall Street. I'm just an average working guy. Look, I'm carrying water. And it shows them to be losers to boot. The details of financial reform are complex, but not so complex that the voters will all forget by November which team supported a strong new consumer protection agency and which team preferred the wild rest status quo for mortgage and credit cards, which team stood with the banks after the worst financial meltdown since the Great Depression, and which team stood for change. It's pretty obvious, huh? But this isn't just a political score. This is a huge policy achievement, a strong blueprint from the Obama administration that actually got stronger as it wound its way through the sausage factory on Capitol Hill. So a policy success. Hey, who, who's this talking? Most of Obama's best proposals survived the legislative process. Obama's proposals. You know, Grumdahl says, I've been a cheerleader for the idea of a new consumer agency to police the financial world and the deal to house it at the Federal Reserve shouldn't affect its independence. The new Financial Stability Oversight Council should help monitor systemic risks by encouraging regulators to think beyond their narrow silos. Oh, man. And the financial missiles that come out of those silos? <laughs> oh, Merv. And the new Resolution Authority should help the government put failed behemoths to death without endangering global finance. Yeah, I 
have to go out and put that big bank down. It's not an easy job here in the financial firm, but it's got to be done. Hand me the OAT 47. Is that a gun? No, that's a regulatory bill. Republicans are calling it a bailout provision, but it's really a tool that officials can use instead of a bailout, <laughs> instead of a stun gun. Obama's plan was full of sensible responses to the last meltdown. It cracked down on the mortgage industry, taking aim at liar loans. Oh, I like that. It's kind of a Norwegian name. Hi, I'm liar loans. Handed to borrowers with no income by lenders with no skin in the game. In other words, you give it to people who can't afford it, but you don't have to worry because you already passed it on to some town in Iceland that's about to go down. Most derivatives will now be traded through regulated clearinghouses so markets can see what they're worth. Ooh, that's going to affect the price. And who's at risk? There were new protections for investors, new restrictions for hedge funds, and lots of other excellent proposals that will now be the law of the land. Now, some critics have said the bill won't go far enough. They're all saying that because, of course, they get paid by the column inch or by the week, that it won't go far enough, that it, uh, it, it just won't be enough. It won't abolish naked credit default swaps. It won't eliminate all proprietary trading by banks or allow Congress to audit federal monetary policy decisions or crack water into oxygen and hydrogen without any use of energy. Those all seem like solutions in search of a problem to me. I do think it's a shame that attacks on big banks were scrapped to secure Republican Senator Scott Brown's vote. The concession uh, wouldn't have been necessary if Senator Russell Feingold had dismounted his high horse and broken a filibuster, but no bill is perfect. It's true, Russ. We know that, you know, we know you're an ideologue and we love you dearly, but come on, get a life. Sure, it's annoying that auto dealers will be exempt from the new consumer protections, but that just reflects the annoying power of auto dealers. This is a big step forward. I like that as a, ah, the annoying power of auto dealers. I get it. So, why didn't I see this all coming? The short explanation is that I was a bit too cynical about Washington. I expected Republicans who had marched in lockstep against health care to keep marching to deny Obama another huge accomplishment. In the end, three stepped out of line. I was also skeptical that finance-friendly Senate Democrats would, would resist Wall Street's full-court lobbying press when a bill as complex provided so many potential excuses to break ranks. In the end, only Feingold voted no, and I figured that if the vote were close, Cornhusker kickback-style deals would end up souring the public on the process. Not so. But while Brown did get a few goodies for Massachusetts banks, mostly the bill actually improved behind closed doors. Yes, improved behind closed doors. And one of the people that made that happen is my heroine, Blanche Lincoln, who right now is being pummeled in Arkansas by some right-wing nutter. And she may very well lose. No great work goes unpunished. Well, thanks, Mike Grumald, and thanks, Blanche Lincoln. Let's just hope things get better down the line. It's sad. I mean, I know people who are partisan and don't like the GOP because they are such awful rascals right now would be happy to know that they are, they have decided. They've got their strategy for the midterm elections. They're mm -hmm. going to make it basically a question of, was the Bush era good for the country? That's where they're going. They're, go they're putting up the Bush flag. Mm. Um, uh, Has everybody forgotten the Reagan flag? Though for most of President Obama's tenure, Republicans were eager to run away from that question. Yep. They now act as though the answer makes them bulletproof. With the economy still in crisis and polls showing Republicans poised to pick up many seats this November, haha, GOP leaders have found the nerve to explicitly argue that what the country needs is a return to the same policies that triggered the country's woes in the first place. We need to go back to the exact same agenda, he said, that is empowering the free enterprise system rather than diminishing it, said NRCC Chairman Pete Sessions on Meet the Press. For Democrats, the comments was a gift, one they plan to use repeatedly between now and the fall. They quote, We could have not made the case any clearer than Pete Sessions did that the Republicans only want to go back to the failed policies of President Bush. Then NRSC Chairman John Cornyn chimed in on C-SPAN. John does him one better. Luck, he says. <laughs> and he's probably the wingiest, with Inhofe, the wingiest of the wingiest. Yeah, Cornyn, DeMint, and, and Inhofe are like the, the three hear no, see no, smell no evil, the mindless boys. He says, look, I think President Bush's stock has gone up a lot since he left office. <laughs> People appreciate his resolve and commitment in the face of a national security threat like 9-11. He had his challenges, no doubt. 
We have learned a lot about things we could have done better as Republicans in terms of fiscal responsibility. I think a lot of people are looking back with a little more, with more fondness on President Bush's administration, and I think history will treat him well. Yeah, well, give me a pipe full of whatever Johnny is smoking. (laughs) If that stuff makes Bush look good, I got to try a taste. This is uh, the first part of my interview with Daniel Ellsberg about the Eikenberry cables as the Pentagon Papers of the Afghan War. I have the honor of having Daniel Ellsberg on the phone with me. Uh, Dan is featured in um, the Academy Award-nominated Best Documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. And that's out today on DVD, so you can get to Netflix or to your local store or whatever and take a look. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Free Oz. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, well, the, one of the things that, that really energized me to, to try and reach you was that um, you had referred to the Eikenberry Cables as the Pentagon Papers of the Afghan War. And uh, I join you in that sentiment, and I'd like to, to get some of, your, some of your background on this and you know, how you feel and, and what you think these, these, these cables mean and how you think we may be able to respond to them. So you just, you just go, Okay. Glad to be that you're asking about at this point. It's uh, months after they actually appeared on the website of the New York Times. Yeah. In fact, you have the exact date there. I think if you look it up in the Times, it's January or so, quite a while ago. So, uh, however, I found when I <laughs> lecture about them or speak about them in connection with the film or whatever, uh, I find that most people, even in New York with the Times, had not heard of them. Really? And... Uh, Partly that's because of little characteristics of our mainstream media. The Times ran one story, one day story. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, as people told me years ago, uh, if a story appears one day in either TV or the press, it didn't happen. <laughs> but the only thing that really impresses itself on people's consciousness is, uh, is a running story oh. that has legs, as they say, and it goes day after day. Like the Pentagon Papers themselves, when Nixon... Uh, made the very bad mistake on the advice of John Mitchell, his bond lawyer, attorney general, that um, he should enjoin the papers, uh, which had, in fact, never happened in American history. Right. The First Amendment was uh, really created in large part to avoid prior restraint like that. So there'd never been an injunction against the newspapers. And when Nixon asked uh, John Mitchell, well, have we done this before? John, John said, uh, yes, yeah, sure, lots of times, which is <laughs> never. <laughs> now, that's what you get, as I say, with the bond salesman for Attorney General. Well, the effect was that uh, with the whole American press, one by one, printing these papers in the face of what turned out to be four injunctions uh, before they gave up, and before the Supreme Court finally ruled against the injunctions, you had day after day after day, really several weeks of uh, front page stories about this, and it, it really hit. Uh, the Eikenberry Cables, which also, like the Pentagon Papers, were the revelation of insiders' views to the president of what was really likely to happen and what he ought to do, views that the president proceeded to ignore and bet against, in effect. Yeah. Uh, they uh, they were very similar then to the Pentagon Papers, but when they were leaked, they say it was a one-day story and uh, in the Times. And another little characteristic of our mainstream press was that the Washington Post didn't run a single story on it. No. Amazing revelations. No. Now, to be specific, by our ambassador in Kabul, in Afghanistan, Lieutenant General, a retired Lieutenant General, Eikenberry, Carl Eikenberry, who had was not only the man in daily touch with Hamid Karzai, the uh, president of uh, Afghanistan, but had earlier been in charge of our military operations in Afghanistan, a job that McChrystal took later. So there was no person more qualified to say what Eikenberry was saying to the president through the Secretary of State, and that was that uh, Karzai was a totally inappropriate person 
being very euphemistic in his language here. Yes. Uh, inappropriate person as a as a partner, not an appropriate partner for a pacification program, a counterinsurgency program, which depends upon the public, the citizens regarding that government <clears throat> as a legitimate government that deserves to be sustained and that uh, deserves even risky help in terms of giving them information about the whereabouts and the activities of insurgents against that government. And of course, to give them such information does take a risk because the insurgents may kill you for it, for doing that. You have to really feel some degree of loyalty and uh, concern about that government to help it out in that way. Well, as uh, what the reason that Karzai wasn't entirely appropriate uh, as Eckenberry put it for it, uh, put for uh, this role, was that he was a, uh, a drug dealing crook, uh, utterly incompetent. Uh, people didn't accuse him of being either a crook or a drug dealer personally. It was his brother who was those things and who he put in office. And uh, if, so long as we were prepared to assume that uh, money flowing into his brother's pockets from opium uh, transactions and from uh, various other crooked deals had nothing to do with Hamid Karzai's uh, interest or bank account, uh, you could regard Hamid Karzai as a kind of a trustworthy, honest, competent person that Reagan, uh, not rather, uh, he was presented as being earlier when George uh, W. Bush put him in front of the State of the Union uh, audience, as I remember, pointed out to him. Uh, he was sitting there next to his wife, as I recall. Yeah. So, uh, and when Karzai presented himself just recently after the Eikenberry cables, he was given a tour in Washington. He was given a tour of Georgetown Gardens by our Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, a new perquisite for a visiting head of state that they invented for Hamid Karzai. And in addition to the uh, uh, private meetings with the president and uh, talks with Congress and everything else, having been exposed uh, sometime earlier by our ambassador, who was present at the time uh, for this visit, as, as I say, uh, a, a, a drug-dealing cook. So uh, that's, uh, that's our ally, and we had to make up for it.
Hi, this is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and I play the teenage barista at the Useless Boy Cafe on Tipping Point, Radio Free Oz's new seaside soap opera. I listen to Radio Free Oz because I pick up the occasional useful Yiddish term. I know that the executives at Goldman Sachs of Crap are not simply thieves and criminals, they're mumsers and tumblers. John Bomer isn't just a witless hand puppet, he's a schmendrick. And the vice principal at my middle school is a schmohawk. When one of the stuck-up girls in my class gave me grief, I told her to stop being such a schmageggy. She said I was putting a curse on her. Maybe I was. This is Sharzad Hackerthumb, and you've got Oz in your ears. You know, I think I'm going to open a shop in Washington, D.C. that that sells nothing but long-handled spoons. Because the devil is back, and many will be supping with him. A new political operation conceived by Republican operatives, Carl Rove and Ed Gillespie, out, demon, out, formed a spinoff group last month that, thanks in part to its ability to promise donors anonymity, has brought in more money in its first month than the parent organization has raised since it started in March. The new group, here comes another great GOP name, American Crossroads GPS, has been telling donors their contributions would be used to dig up dirt on congressional Democrats, expense accounts abuses, and to frame the BP oil spill as Obama's Katrina. Where can I sign up? Where can I sign up with anonymity and support this fabulous cause, Mr. Mesostopheles? Excuse me, Mr. Rove. The GPS group pulled in $5.1 million in June, its first month in operation, while the original American Crossroads, which has spent $600,000 on tough ads blistering Senator Majority Leader Harry Reid, who is going to beat that wing not two to one, it only brought in $4.7 million. Uh, because American Crossroads was incorporated under Section 527 of the IRS, which requires it to disclose its contributors, but American's Crossroads GPS is a 501c4, which is a little, it's, it's a little adumbrated in its ability to do mischief, but you don't have to tell anybody who's paying for the mischief. Oh, how good. Now, according to a concept paper that was distributed last month to wealthy Republican donors, many of them in hiding, American Crossroads GPS intends to build a micro-team of researchers and polling professionals and list uh, development professionals, list development professionals, and direct contact. These are male, direct male, and boiler room whores to develop and disseminate hard-hitting issue advocacy attacking Democrats by exposing Obamacare. Oh my God, Obamacare, it brings health to everybody. It's well-run and it's compassionate and it's bringing young people into the medical profession. Time to put the heel on that. And it's also going to expose the great stimulus ripoff, whatever that is. And the new federal bureaucratic elite paid for by struggling private sector families. Most of those private sector families are bankrupt and are walking on their mortgages and don't care at all about who's elite. They just want to eat. Uh, now, a veteran GOP operative familiar with the group's fundraising activity said the spinoff was found large, formed largely because donors were reluctant to see their names publicly associated with giving to a 527 that was connected with Karl Rove. Well, that's good news. It didn't stop them. I mean, I don't mind giving the son of a bitch my, my money to do terrible things. Just don't print my name on the bill. Uh, one of my favorite little blogs, uh, uh, Political Wire, it's, it's all politics, but it's really brief and it really gets in the good stuff, tells us that there's a new Quinnipiac poll, David, finds that 79% of Americans believe the economy is still in recession as compared to 74% who felt that way in May and 71% who said so in May of 2008. Ooh. So a year, almost a year, two months ago, it's gone up. The people, they know what's happening. That's when the economy began to slide officially. A majority, 52%, also think the, the economy has started to recover. So they're not really sure. Most interesting, American voters say by a 64 to 30% margin that reducing unemployment is more important than reducing the federal budget deficit. Even Republicans say by 58% to 38% that reducing unemployment is more important. So what we're looking at, baby, is a Republican constituency, 58 to 38, that are in total disagreement with all of the people, all the GOP in the Congress who are saying just the opposite. Well, they are going to pass. They they are going to pass a jobs bill. I mean, they've they've got to do that because that's where the that's the public 
outcry is stronger than on any other subject at the moment. But the uh, GOP isn't listening. And there, there no, was an article, no, I, I couldn't find it today, so I can't uh, quote it in depth, but I think it was in the Seattle Times that said that the Obama people, the smart people, man, you just can't step away from thinking these people don't know what's going on. You know, they won an, an impossible election by, by, you know, taking over the nation via the internet and getting in touch. They are organizing the, the unemployed and the welfare people to vote, and they're actually coming forward to vote. It used to be when you were on welfare or unemployed, you were much too, you know, just out of it to vote because that takes time and thought. Not now. There's a real, uh, if not radicalization, an, ener- an energizing of the unemployed, and they are going to make a big difference in the midterms. You think the unemployed are more um, more apt to uh, vote against the Republicans than um, than than the than the than the Tea Partyists, the Nativists, uh, you know, who might be employed. Well, absolutely yes. Only because the GOP continuous continuously disses them, calls them things like stray animals, calls them lazy, says that that getting unemployment is a sign that you don't want to work, you'd rather stay at home. This is libelous. This is this is how you lose an entire. You see, it's not a demographic. The unemployed that shifts, right? You aren't necessarily born unemployed for all of your life the way you're born Hispanic or a woman or gay. But this is a real demographic now. It's a huge slice of the people and their children are watching their parents suffer too. Yes. So you're creating Democrats down the line. We certainly are creating children who don't know what to do. I was uh, up at Oak Harbor High School the other day, which is in the midst of the Naval Reserve up at the north end of the island. And uh, uh uh, the guy we were talking to who teaches uh, the media classes, who teaches animation and uh, uh, video editing and all those kinds of creative things, said that he really didn't feel he, – he felt a strong apathy on the part of the students where, it, where creativity happens, that he couldn't make them. You can't make anybody be creative, of course, but here they couldn't even take the opportunity to become creative. And why? I think because it's hopeless out there. If I can't get a job being an auto mechanic, uh, how am I going to get a job being a video editor or some exotic, you know, or writer like or performer. Or a writer or performer. Well, yeah. another thing is, is that with all of the CGI and with the fact that entertainment is moving at the speed of light, double, 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 and everything is, is capable, it's, it's, it's stunning. I mean, you go, oh, my God, how can I get into that? Where do I start? Why don't I just be a receiver? How in the world can I ever get that? together it's it's overwhelming yeah creativity can happen to uh, you know the 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 lowest of the nerds you know creativity is everywhere uh you yes, take those science classes learn how to do calculus and out of that you might invent a way to get us out of the thing we're in help another answer to the question why you don't want to be born in a third world country Approximately 400,000 infants will get HIV-AIDS from their mothers each year despite the availability of drugs that can block nearly all mother-to-child transmission, researchers have recently reported. Now, you can only guess where the mothers are that don't get the drugs. Giving mothers and newborns potent anti-HIV drugs has all but eliminated mother-to-infant HIV transmission in the USA and developed countries. The World Health Organization also says that HIV-infected women can safely breast feed without transmitting HIV to their newborns as long as they or their infants take antiviral medication, which is readily available if you've got the bucks and the pull. Virtual elimination of mother-to-child transmission of HIV by 2015 is possible, Paul DeLay, Deputy Director of the United Nations Joint uh, AIDS Conference in Vienna, said relatively small investments can go a long way in saving mothers and babies. But where is that small investment? Uh, it's being put into yachts and bubbles and drugs somewhere somewhere else in the world. Worldwide, 355,000 children with HIV were able to obtain life-saving HIV drug treatment by the end of 2009, up from 276,000 in 2008, but many more lives could be saved if more infants started on medication earlier, the WHO says. Many children younger than a year old lack access to HIV treatment because HIV tests are unavailable in some places. Yeah, places where people have really dark skin. 
As a result, the WHO is calling for greater access to infant diagnosis starting at four to six weeks after birth. Without diagnosis followed by prompt treatment, roughly a third of HIV-infected infants will die before their first birthday. The WHO says half will die before reaching two years of age. It's a death sentence we don't have to sign. It brings up a very interesting issue. It's all about the United Nations. Our empire is winding down. The war in Afghanistan, the occupation in Afghanistan, it's our last war. It's all over. There's no other place to go. Sooner or later, and this is what's driving the teabaggers mad, is we're going to have to give over some of our power to a greater group, to the United Nations, where they speak many other languages. Remember, you must remember if you're a true American that everybody else is a failed attempt at being us. This is part two of my interview with Daniel Ellsberg. We talk about the rise of the Taliban, and is this now Obama's war? Okay, I can barely reveal this. Also, that the request being made by his military counterpart, McChrystal, General McChrystal, for uh, 30,000 to or 80,000, preferably, American troops to add to the 70,000 or so that we had there already, was not only counterproductive, it was not only useless, it would not help our security there at all, it was counterproductive. The more troops you put in there in the countryside killing people and killing civilians, the more recruits for the Taliban. So no matter how many people you killed over there, you ended up facing more than you had to start with. Shades and of Vietnam, that's huh? what happened in Vietnam, of yeah, course. Yes, exactly. Uh, no hearts, no minds. And in fact, that's what's happening, Dan, is that there's recent reports on the fact that the Taliban is strengthening, that uh, more people are, are flocking to them because uh, because of all the drone killings and because civilian deaths are up. It, 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 it's chaos, absolute chaos. Well, the more people we put in, the more Taliban there are to fight. And that's not a coincidence, or just an, an irony, you might say, or my, how how odd. Uh, <laughs> it's a direct cause and effect. Yeah. The Taliban are being recruited by our, the activity of our soldiers, which, uh, no matter how many Taliban they kill, involve killing more civilians or bystanders. In fact, I was thinking the other day, the Taliban, you know, is quite well-funded from the opium trade, uh, they take their cut out of it, just as Hamid Karzai and his brother, Wally Karzai, uh, take uh, take their cut out of it. So the opium trade is financing both sides, you might say. Well, uh, since they're well-financed, the Taliban pays their troops more than the Karzai government pays its troops. Now, McChrystal found out this anomaly recently uh, on taking over and gee, we ought to do something about that and increase the, the pay somewhat of the Afghan army. But uh, you might well ask, well, why did it ever come about they were paying less? The answer is the, the Karzai group is less ideological than the Taliban, which is to say more corrupt. And they just can't afford to share that opium money with their troops. They send it off to Switzerland or whatever. So... Um, Given that the Taliban does pay money for its recruits, it occurred to me they have the money for that. Uh, they really, if they could do it sort of secretly, it would pay them to uh, <clears throat> pay our recruits. Uh, the more the more people, you know, give them a bonus for every civilian they kill. I know. Uh, so that's direct recruiting of that person's cousins, brothers, mothers, daughters. Uh, for new Taliban, and uh, the the Taliban couldn't do better uh, at getting itself more recruits than to pay our Afghan army or our military for the civilians they kill. Let me let, let me and, ask you something, Dan. Which is I want to get to one point, which which I think is really significant, also, which is that that they're calling what steel and people like that are calling this Obama's war now. Now you have a lot of experience in in this. Is that has this become Obama's war? Is this just something that he got as a you know well, as a dowry or what? He didn't start it. No, he didn't start it any more than Johnson started 
the Vietnam War, right. or with Kennedy started the Vietnam War, and yet Kennedy, by increasing our advisors from about one thousand to sixteen thousand, yeah. made it Kennedy's advisory war, still on the small side. And then Johnson uh, inherited the war, as they say, but he increased the number from sixteen thousand to five hundred and fifty thousand. So that's a different war. And it's Johnson's war. Of course, it is Obama's war now, moving up. He's more than tripled uh, the number of troops that were there. It's an entirely different size war than he took over. So I think it's perfectly fair for Steele to call it Obama's war. Now, the reason that the, reason that, uh, the Republicans are so mad at their, their chairman for calling it Obama's war is that uh, they like it. They want it to continue. Uh, they have some unease about it. I mean, they're not totally moronic, so they can see that it isn't going too well at the moment, but it's something they want to keep going. They believe in it. They support it. They're looking for victory. And so they don't want Obama to get the credit for it. Uh, (laughs) The point is that Steele, who seems to be considerably something of a jerk, uh, occasionally is able to come up with something reasonable. And when he called, when he said this is a war that's absurd to think of uh, the worst case in the world for Americans to choose to fight a war, that's pretty close. That's that's a good approximation. It's very hard to think of a worse place to fight a war. I noticed even Hillary Clinton mentioned he was a big supporter of it, and one of the one of the people, by the way, who was overruling Eikenberry really? on the uh, need to put more troops over there. But even she said the other day, I noticed that. It's uh, unusually costly logistically to support our troops, but usually difficult terrain to fight in. And uh, when I see pictures of it, as, as I did on this movie, quite good uh, documentary the other day, Restropo, Restropo, it just makes me shudder to think as a former Marine infantry officer. Uh, I, I could feel it in my back every time somebody had to get up off the ground with that heavy pack heavy pack. They're now wearing body armor, which we didn't in the Marines when I was in. And uh, special sights on their rifles. Oh, yeah. And all that that wonderful technology, which we didn't have to carry around because it didn't exist. And when I see people lumbering up those mountaintops, desert mountaintops in there, I could just feel for them. I, I, I didn't think I could stand up under that stuff. Newt Gingrich. Sometimes he's really, really smart. He's like one of those people that shines above the Republicans every now and then. And then sometimes he's really, really stupid and thick and ignorant. So which Newt Gingrich do we have today? I'll let you figure that out for yourself. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich is the latest to weigh in on the controversial plans to build a mosque near Ground Zero, according to Talking Point's memo. He's posting a statement on his website that lays out this ultimatum. There should be no mosque near Ground Zero in New York, so long as there are no churches or synagogues in Saudi Arabia. Now, I like that. Now, come on, Newt. How'd you figure it out? We should basically be using Saudi Arabia as the module for how we run our civil society. Hey, no churches or synagogues in Saudi Arabia. Ding, ding. No mosques in America. Newt. You need a brain transplant. Right-wingers have been freaking out about plans to build the Cordoba House, a Muslim community center near Ground Zero, and Gingrich is only the latest to speak out against the plan, writing that the time for double standards that allow Islamists to behave aggressively toward us while they demand our weakness and submission is over. Well put, if it meant anything. He was also clear about who else is at fault for allowing these plans, okay? Who is it going to be? Liberals, ding. Democrats, ding. No, a category that encompasses both, that subsumes all the bad guys. Sadly, too many of our ready elites are the willing apologists for those who would destroy them if they could. No mosque, no self-deception, no surrender. The time to take a stand is now, at this site, on this issue. He should have it in his, his family, it's crushing, you know. It should have Newt facing left or right, depending on the wind, and it says, no mosque, no self-deception, no surrender. No bueno. Something here on the uh, coloring book? Uh, yeah, it's uh, the deputy Dan coloring book. I'm going to read it to the kids. I'm going to help translate this uh, 
This is a publication for school children, and it's in Spanish. Sí. Oh, boy, this is going to be good. Mi nombre es Deputy Dan, del Departamento del Sheriff del Condado de Los Ángeles. Uh, my name is Deputy Dan, and I work for the Sheriff of uh, the... Um, uh, that's, uh, that's a very strange word Condado there. de Los Ángeles. Ah, ah, I work for the Sheriff of the Jail of Los Ángeles. Deputy Dan nos dice, Nunca suban a carros de personas extrañas. Don't get into any strange cars with Deputy Dan. <clears throat> Les enseña a cuidarse por las calles. Deputy Dan will uh, walk small Chinese children across the street. Wonderful, wonderful. Is that nice? Mire y escuche antes de cruzar la calle. Run like hell when you cross the street because Deputy Dan is after you. That's a that's for that's the ghettos. That's a good one. No siga la pelota hacia la calle. Uh, now this is a very interesting. This is linguistic here. The translation of of that might be a. Uh, let's rock and roll, or or let the dance go on. Uh, uh, word for word, it's uh, it's don't uh, don't don't follow the balls when they uh, make the street. It's very hard to translate literally from Spanish. You don't follow the balls when they make the street. Obedeza las leyes para su seguridad. Uh, that's, uh, you better obey all the laws or they'll put you in security prison. Right on, right on! <coughs> eh, Deputy Dan nos ayuda cuando estamos golpeados. Uh, Deputy Dan will, uh, uh, will knock us down uh, when we're injured by a car. I think that's what that is. Deputy that's Dan terrible! Ahí ya, si nos perdemos. Uh, this, is a, this is a shot of uh, naked children, uh, or almost naked children, being picked up by a police helicopter uh, way up in the mountains where they've gone. That's Deputy Dan will find us no matter how far away we go. It's a sí. translation of that. Deputy Dan is su amigo. Deputy Dan. Deputy Dan. Has no friends. Has no friends. <laughs> I know enough Spanish. Spanish. I know him personally, so. Right, right. That's very good. <laughs> and finally, no le abran las puertas a personas extrañas. Never open the door for Deputy Dan. He's on the other <laughs> side. He doesn't have to knock anymore, you that's, know, Deputy That's a Dan. wonderful publication. Hi, boys and girls. I'm Peter Pitcher, sheriff from Los Angeles County. You've heard of the Misery Index. Now meet the Insecurity Index. A new study estimates that 20% of Americans suffered a significant economic loss last year, the highest level in the past 25 years. The new Economic Security Index looks at the interaction of three key variables that have a direct bearing on a person's economic security. One, income loss. Two, medical expenses. And three, debt. The index, which tracks data since 1985, shows that economic insecurity has risen across all groups, not just amongst low-income families and those without much education. The index was constructed by Yale political scientist Jacob Hacker, Bula Bula, and a team of researchers, and the project was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. The ESI defines people as economically insecure when their situation meets two criteria. First, within a year's time, they have lost 25% or more of their available gross income. And that's a lot of folks, and I know some of them. Available gross income is the money that they have left over after paying for medical costs and debt. Second, they don't have enough in an emergency fund or other liquid reserves to make up the difference. It's a time of anxiety and fear. And these are not lazy people. These are not drones. These are not dolts. These are people that have been victimized by all of those mumsers and tumblers that, that played our financial system and all of those greedy gorgles who hold too much in their pockets while we have too little. Does this make me a big redistribute the income guy? Yeah, that's me. Come and get me. Hacker noted that it can typically take between six to eight years to restore one's available income to its previous level. Six to eight years. You can ruin a child's life. In the meantime, hey, get it all done at once. Meanwhile, a survey cited by Hacker found that 48% of Americans said last year that they had only enough resources to carry them for two months before experiencing any economic hardship. And according to the index, which is based pr primarily on Census Bureau data, 12.2% of Americans were economically insecure in 1985. By 2009, Hacker and his team estimated that 20.4% of Americans could be classified that way. 
the people in Washington. I'm talking about the Congress, not not all the lobbyists and and you know and fix it people on the outside. I'm talking about the people we we elected to represent our best interests. They just don't get it. Some of the Democrats do. Some of them actually are in touch with the little people, and I don't mean the leprechauns. But most of those Republicans are so out of touch. They have no way of touching the misery index. They have no way of touching the insecurity index because they are, what can I, it's body armor. It's Reichian body armor. They are all so armored that all the facts and reality of life just bounce off them. So, Dave, we've heard half of the Ellsberg interview. That man's something else. Huh? Wow, that's very impressive, and and I'm I'm glad you got him, Pete. My gosh. Yeah, it was. You know, once I started to kind of like to relate to him. You know, we're 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 kind of like age peers, and we've been through some of the same stuff, at least education wise, and various other stuff. He 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 was very relaxed. He could have gone on forever. We have got the other half coming up tomorrow. Excellent. But, so show's over, so to speak, but the Tang poetry lasts. Yeah, it does. It lasts. Uh, all of these 700 years or however long it's been, you know, since since Tu Fu wrote White Horse. A white horse comes running from the northeast, two arrows sticking up from the empty saddle. And the rider, poor devil, who can tell his story now, how his commander was killed, how he fought wounded at midnight. So many deaths have come from this fighting. I start to cry. My tears won't stop. A time of conflict and a time of great poetry. Maybe it's going to start all over again. And Oz will start all over again tomorrow, brought to you tonight and every night and every day by the Oz team. Peter Burton, I'm your host, David Osman, our co-host. Bill McIntyre, our producer. Dave Maloney does our audio engineering. Tom Gedwillow, our webmaster. Scott Wilde, social media guru. Chaz Glass keeps the numbers happening, and Phil Fount makes it look all so beautiful. Anon and Anon.